So for our subject today, we're going to be thinking about the results of justification. You might have seen that um, title in our um, study programme as we work our way through the epistle to the Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 5, and we're looking at the first 11 verses, and um, I'll read it to you now. So Romans chapter 5, I'm reading from the New International Version. Verse 1. Therefore... Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through his, the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So that's our passage. And as I said, we're, we're looking at the results of justification today. And it follows on from the previous two chapters, of course, which explored why we needed justification in the first place, and how we um, can become, or how we became, if we're Christians already, how we became um, justified. The key point being that we're justified by faith and not by doing good works. If you uh, want a reminder of what justification is, then you will just have to go back and listen to the recordings of some of our previous um, ministries. Um, but. For a simple definition, I like uh, the one which uh, you'll have heard me said, say many times before, I think, uh, the definition which sounds a little bit like the first part of the word, that if we are justified, it is just as if we've never sinned. Just as if we've never sinned at all. God declares us to be righteous. Now chapter 5 starts off by taking all that as a given. Uh, verse 1 starts with, therefore since we have been justified through faith. And Paul goes on then to explain what the results of that justification are. What does it all add up to? Now I've said it like that for a reason. Uh, what does it add up to? Because we can't think of it as a sort of calculation. Uh, there was a problem and God provided a solution. Last week, our subject was looking at the workings out of God's solution. 
Um, and this week we're looking at the result, yeah? And yes, that is, that is the case, but I think the thing with looking at it like that is that we can make it all sound a little bit theoretical. Um, and I'm reminded of a careers talk that I went to uh, once, which was being given by an accountant. Um, and he was trying to explain what was so great about, about being an accountant. And he said the thing that really did it for him, the thing that excited him, the thing that made all the hard work worthwhile was when it all added up and it balanced. And I looked around that room at all the teenagers listening to that talk and uh, I could see that the thing that really made the accountant excited wasn't floating anybody else's boat in that room. Nobody else thought that was a really great thing to achieve. How can we view what God's work adds up to in a way which really means something to us? In a way that really excites us? I'm not suggesting that what we've read today doesn't mean anything to us, of course. Um, but I think it's true for many Christians at the high point um, of our Christian experience was when we got saved, yeah? And the joy and the confidence and the excitement that we had at first, then often for many Christians, their experience is that it starts to get whittled away by the various disappointments and difficulties and distractions of everyday life. And it's too easy for our Bibles to become a kind of textbook that we just use for ritual study. Um, especially if we're not finding things which really matter to us, if we're not finding things in our Bibles which encourage us. Now, Paul was writing this letter to a church which needed encouragement. A church which was suffering. Verse 3 again, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. He was talking to a church which could identify with that with that feeling, with that sentiment. Now we can imagine some of the things that they um, might have been suffering from, can't we? There, there would certainly be persecution, um, like so many of the early Christians, um, but we also assume they had the same kind of struggles that you and I have. Um, no doubt some had financial worries, some had poor health, some had pressures at work or at school. Um, perhaps some had relationship problems and so many other things and then as David was telling us, David Woods was telling us a couple of weeks ago in his talk it seems likely that there was also conflict within the church between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers the one place that ought to have been an oasis of encouragement and joy might actually have been a source of even more stress and difficulty and disappointment. And what Paul's trying to do here is to give them a different perspective so that they can view all their difficulties, present and whatever might have happened in the future, uh, in a more positive way. So instead of becoming weaker and weaker, they might actually become stronger and stronger and that's what God wants for all of us isn't it the day of our salvation shouldn't actually be the high point of our Christian lives it should be the low point really because from there we should get higher and higher 
not the other way around. So let's look at some of the blessings that should inform our perspective, the things that should be a source of joy whether or not we're going through difficulties. And the first thing we have here is in verse 1. It says that because we've been justified, we have peace with God. Now we're talking about reconciliation here. We're talking about a new relationship with God in which we're no longer viewed as enemies, um, but we've been brought back um, together with God just like it was in the beginning. In fact, better than in the beginning because, of course, this time sin cannot spoil that relationship like it did when sin first came into the world. Uh, I think there's a verse in the previous chapter which says that God will remember our sins no more. Um, never ever will remember our sins. We still sin, but this time, unlike in the experience of Adam and Eve, it cannot spoil our relationship with God from God's um, perspective. Uh, there's a, a phrase that the government's using a lot at the moment um, to describe what they want to do after the pandemic about building back better. Well, you know, that, well, whether they're going to achieve that, who knows? Uh, probably not. But God's, God's already done that. And God, that is what God is doing. He is building back better than it was even at the beginning. I should say that there is an alternative version of verse 1. It doesn't change our um, understanding of what Paul is getting at, but uh, many of the old manuscripts actually say, let us have peace with God, which implies that we have to do something if we want to get that peace. But if that's what Paul um, actually wrote, he would just be emphasising the need for us to appreciate and enjoy the reality of our new relationship with God. Uh, he's not saying that believers need to do anything to achieve it, because God has already done everything that needs to be done. Um, as we read later in the passage where Paul um, talks about our reconciliation and justification in the past tense. Uh, I won't read all of that second half, but from verse 9 onwards you, you get that point. And uh, just for example, verse 11 finishes off with the phrase, um, we have now received reconciliation. So it's very much something that has already happened. We have peace with God. We don't have to go and find it. Did you notice the, uh, the phrase, how much more? Um, we got it twice in the passage, um, in both verses 9 and 10. It's a phrase which is comparing two things, isn't it? How much more is one thing than the other? Uh, in verse 9, it's comparing being justified with being saved from God's wrath. Now, which one do you think is the better thing, if I might, might say it like that? Um, is it being saved? You know, gospel preaching often emphasises the need to be saved from God's judgement. And maybe that's just because <coughs> people often need um, that to be able to see the benefit for them in a, in, in a much more immediate way. It's easy to understand that God is a God of wrath against sin and we need to be saved because we don't want to go to hell. So that's kind of the, the theme a lot of gospel um, preaching um, seems to take. But in verse 9, it's justification which is being emphasised. It's like Paul is saying, and I'm kind of paraphrasing the verse, 
Because we've been justified, like we never sinned at all, it's really easy for God no longer to have wrath against us. And, and we get the same in verse 10. Because we've been reconciled and we now have a relate, new relationship with God, how much more easy is it for God to save us and give us eternal life? That's not to say that anything about our initial salvation was easy, of course. Um, verse 9 says that we are justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Verse 10 says we've been reconciled by his death. I'm just saying that justification was the incredibly difficult thing for God to achieve. Um, and everything else which follows on from that is the easy part, the things that follow naturally. So, we have peace with God. That's the first result of our justification that the passage talks about. And then in verse 2 it talks about grace. Now we often think of grace in the context of getting saved. Ephesians 2 verse 5, it's by grace you have been saved. But grace is so much more than that, isn't it? It's often described as God's undeserved kindness towards us. Um, or as we're reminded by the little acronym G-R-A-C-E, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. And the word grace really in scripture is a shorthand for everything that we have from God, not just the, uh, not just the getting saved bit, it's everything that follows on from that. That is grace, that is being in God's grace. And as Paul explains in chapter four, our understanding of grace reminds us that the blessings that we have um, that God um, has given us and promised towards us are a response to faith. They're not because of anything good that we've done. Uh, and that's great because if we didn't have to do anything to earn it in the first place, we don't have to do anything to keep hold of it either. And Paul's writing to a church which is in conflict, as we said, a church where there was all sorts of sins and bad behaviour, as there is in any church and as there is in any community. And yet he says in verse 2 that they have gained access into this grace. And in that grace, despite everything that they were doing wrong, and despite the conflict that was going on, probably, they were still standing. <coughs> they were still standing in that grace. And so, as it also says in verse 2, they could be sure of their hope of the glory of God. They could be sure of their hope of the glory of God. That's an amazing contrast, isn't it, from something we read earlier in the epistle to the Romans. You remember in chapter 3, we were looking at the verse, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now in chapter 5, it says that they can boast in the hope, their hope, of the glory of God. Fall short of the glory of God, then because of what Christ has done, we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. To be part of God's future glory, to, be, to share in all the uh, riches of Christ, to experience the transformation and glorification of our own bodies, that was another subject that we looked at in one of our previous um, uh, studies. Um, these are just some of the blessings which it says in chapter 4 are guaranteed and they come as a result of our justification. They come because we've been reconciled and have peace with God. 
And they come because we are standing in God's grace, standing in God's riches. And the more we can appreciate our peace with God, the grace of God and the, the hope of the glory of God, I think the more we should be able to endure any difficulties or disappointments or any other form of suffering that we might have to experience. Now one of the things that can rob us of that comfort um, is the fear that we can lose our salvation. Especially if our faith falters, the argument might be that if we're justified by faith and if we lose faith, then how can we still have the results of justification? Now maybe that's not something you've ever worried about before, but sometimes suffering can lead us into all sorts of uh, doubts and even doubts about salvation. Uh, and if we can't be confident that God wants us to have all these blessings, if we lose the perspective that we've been thinking about, then, then we can end up in a, in a dark place, can't we? Now, Ephesians 1, 2 Corinthians 5 are some of the many scriptures which assure us that we cannot lose our salvation. Um, we're not going to go there today for the sake of time, because actually here in Romans 5, Paul is giving us a similar assurance. In fact, you might say that the thing that Paul is talking about, that we've read, uh, you know what I'm talking about, yes? Uh, you might say that that actually is the foundation of all assurance. Because he's talking about the reason God wanted to save us in the first place. He's talking about love. The love of God. We can think of it like this. God's love is so huge, so amazing, so unconditional, that there's no way that he would ever take something back uh, that he's already given to us or, or, or promised um, um, to us. And there's no way that God would ever set conditions on our faith or expect anything of us such that if we didn't do it that we would be in some way disqualified. God wants to bless us despite all our failings because he loves us. And Paul says that the proof of that love, that huge, amazing, unconditional love can be seen here. Um, verse 8 it says simply, Christ died for us. Now there's a lot in that one statement, isn't it? We could make a whole, a whole talk just out of that one statement. Um, for Almighty God to pay any price, or even to be mildly inconvenienced, would be an indication that he at least cared about us, wouldn't it? That he cared about us as he cursed for all his creation. But Christ's death wasn't just a price, and it certainly wasn't just an inconvenience. God paid the ultimate price, didn't he? And he suffered in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. So that alone elevates God's feelings towards us to uh, far more than just caring. We're talking about the highest level of love here, aren't we? And although we do see sacrificial love in human beings, people do occasionally risk their lives or even give their lives for others. That's the the argument that verse 7 is making, the cause has to be worthy. At least people who make that sacrifice like to believe that the cause uh, was worthy, uh, in some way deserving of their sacrifice. But in verse 8 we see that God's love far exceeds the best of human love, because it says that Christ died for sinners. 
Sinners who in verse 6 are described as weak and ungodly. And in verse 10 we're described as the enemies of God. We were not a worthy cause. But we were and are loved by God regardless. And with a love like that, can we really imagine God withholding what he's promised because we had a few doubts? Or because we allowed our sinful nature to get the better of us at times? Or we didn't read our Bible and pray every day? Or we didn't live worthy of the gospel in, in, in other ways? Of course, God wants us to grow stronger in our faith and joy and, and doing good works. He doesn't want us to go the other way. Um, but it's not a condition of his love. It's not a condition of the blessings that we've, we've been thinking about so far. Now let's just go back to verse 3 to, to summarise what we've been thinking about. The Christians in, Ru in Rome were, were suffering. And Paul wanted to give them a perspective to help them cope with that suffering. In fact, he wanted them to, to more than cope. He wanted them to glory in their sufferings, we read in verse 3. The first encouragement we touched on was the reminder that no matter how much we might lose in this life, whether it be possessions or health or freedom or loved ones or whatever, no matter how much we might lose in this life, no matter how much the spiritual blessings that we have, especially the new relationship we have with God and the glory we can look forward to, that far outweighs anything we might have lost. The second thing uh, was the assurance that we can never lose those blessings. They came to us by grace, we didn't deserve them, we'll never deserve them, so it's not for us to hang on to them, they are guaranteed. Thirdly, the reason we have these blessings and the reason God was willing to pay so high a price uh, for us to have them is because of his immense love for each one of us. And that love is more than just a factor that explains why God did something. It's not just a cause and effect sort of argument. It's how he feels. Love's an emotion, isn't it? It's not, a, it's not a, an explanation. We often say, well, God did this because he loved us, like one thing leads to the other, and it did. But let's not lose sight of the fact that love is an emotion. God has emotions and love towards us. He feels something about you and me. And so we can take knowledge in uh, comfort in the knowledge that God cares and feels for every one of us when we struggle or go through difficulties. And then just one more thing, um, a fourth thing that I've not touched on yet, um, is that suffering has its own reward. Um, verse 3 again. Uh, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character uh, leads to hope. Perseverance is the ability to endure continual pressure or stress or anything that's difficult to cope with. And perhaps we can all translate that into any areas of our lives where we've known difficulty previously or perhaps even struggling with things um, in the present. What perseverance produces, verse 4 says, is character. 
Now, we all have character, don't we? But here, it means a state of being tested and proved. It's like what we get in 1 Peter 1, where it talks about us being refined by fire. It's like what James chapter 1 is talking about, when it talks about it leading to maturity and completeness. Paul isn't encouraging us to look for suffering, of course, only to try, in whatever experiences we have in life, to see any difficulties with a right perspective, the perspective that God wants us to see them with. Because the assurance of our passage is that whatever happens, at the end of the tunnel, you'll be fine. You'll be more than fine. And the more we can appreciate the truths behind the assurances that we've looked at today, the more peace and hope that we'll have when we're in the tunnel. As the psalmist put it in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Thank <laughs> you.